Awesome. You guys can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, open it to Romans chapter 8. Um, you know, this past week, I picked up some of our youth from a, uh, a choir concert. And uh, from there, I drove them home. They live in uh, Stop 6. Um, and it's Stop 6 has, you know, d- developed a reputation, um, not unjustly, for being a rough neighborhood. And um, so... As, as the kids are getting out of my car at this apartment complex, I see a whole bunch of kids uh, playing. They're playing football, they're running, they're doing cartwheels, and uh, my heart just ignited, and I thought, cool, I'm going to go hang out with the kids, and, and so I get out, and, and I go into the courtyard, and uh, I mean, the kids I mean, just started running to me. I've been hanging out there quite a bit now, and the kids just started running to me, screaming, Pastor Shane, Pastor Shane, and pick me up. I pick one kid up, spin them around, pick another kid up, spin them around, pick another up, and, and before you know it, I mean, I'm being tackled by a ton of kids. They're on my back. They're, uh, they're all wanting to be held and picked up. They're all craving love. Uh, I'm, I, I'm holding one little kid. Another little kid uh, says, that's my Pastor Shane, and so I pick him up for a little bit. And I noticed some, some older kids, some teens, off across the courtyard just kind of hanging out together. Now, these particular teens were wearing their pants so low that I, I don't know how in the world they could walk without losing their pants or tripping over their pants. And so I walk over and I extend my hand. I said, hi, I'm Shane. And they just, uh, one kid just looks at my hand and he says, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't shake hands. I said, yeah, that's cool. No, no problem. And so I extend my hand to the other kid. I said, my name is Shane. And again, he just looked at me and he said, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think I want to shake your hand. And there was just a hollowness about their countenance. There was a dullness about their countenance. There was an attitude. There was a sarcasm. And there were some, 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 some younger, uh, some teenage girls sitting there listening to music. And I said, hi, I'm Shane. And they said, I, I, we, we don't want your God. She said, I don't want your God. I don't believe in God. I said, well, he believes in you, and he wants to change the world through you. And so that was that from that conversation. And uh, it was... It was very distinct, um, because the, the kids that we brought back from the youth choir, well, they had been coming out to our church for about seven years now, and they've been saved, they've been born again, they received the Holy Spirit, Christ is in their heart, they're memorizing scripture, they're growing, they're developing a love and security in the word, they consider their church family their primary family, not their secondary family, their primary family, they have joy, their countenance is bright, and I saw these little children who were craving love, and these teens whose countenances are bright, lit up by the Holy Spirit, and these teens who obviously do not have the Holy Spirit. And it was evident that these children who are craving love are going to grow up and be these kids who have joy and who have respect and whose paths and decisions will result in blessings upon their life, or these kids whose lives will continue to emulate a cycle of destruction, self-destruction, And the difference between these teens and these teens, the difference between these children going this way and this way, is an inner power, an inner capacity called the Holy Spirit. And this is the subject that we're entering into now in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 14. The Apostle Paul describes three kinds of people. Those who are lost and do not have the Holy Spirit. 
those who are saved and they have the Holy Spirit and those who are surrendered, totally surrendered, those whom the Holy Spirit completely has control over their lives. Which Christian are you? Or which person are you? Are you the lost? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you the saved? You, you have the Holy Spirit, but perhaps the Holy Spirit doesn't have complete control of you? Or are you the surrendered, the totally surrendered, in whom the Holy Spirit has complete control over? Now let me ask you a question. How many joyful, radiant Christians do you know? How many do you know? Now, if you look in the mirror, are you one of them? Are you a joyful, victorious, radiant, vibrant Christian? If not, then perhaps you have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't entirely have you. You're not surrendered to Him. No matter our situations in life, no matter our circumstances through life, we are not subject to the whims of our circumstances. We can have victory no matter our circumstances because greater is He that is in us, that's the Holy Spirit, than He that is in the world. So last week we looked at uh, living a breaking through condemnation and living in liberty. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 through 4. Today as we continue through Romans chapter 8, we will be looking at, in verses 5 through 14, breaking through defeat. Breaking through despair, breaking through discouragement, breaking through that despairing cycle, breaking through defeat and living in victory. And now we're introduced to the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the major texts in, the, in terms of the Holy Spirit. It's a text in which we interpret other texts through in terms of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus had a long discourse about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And we read about uh, a great deal about the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 4, Romans chapter 8 is one of the foundational texts of the Holy Spirit. So I hope it's encouraging as we realize our potential that perhaps is, is being left untapped and we begin walking in the victory that is offered to us through the power of the Holy Spirit through Romans chapter 8. I also hope it's very solidifying, I hope it's very grounding, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or beliefs of the Holy Spirit or activities that are supposedly surrounding the Holy Spirit have divided many churches. So I hope it, it, it grounds and establishes our theology, but not only that, I hope it, it inspires us to discover the potential that we have by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin by a quick uh, context of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the Old Testament pattern of the Holy Spirit, and then let's look at the New Testament promise of the Holy Spirit. And those words were chosen very specifically. The Old Testament pattern of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout the Old Testament, before Christ, we tended to discover a, a pattern of the Holy Spirit, how He operated. But we don't simply have a pattern of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we have a promise of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And so we know exactly how he wants to operate. And it's slightly different. Actually, it's largely different than the way he operated in the Old Testament. So let's just look at the pattern of the Old Testament uh, activity of the Holy Spirit. Well, for one, uh, in the book of Judges, uh, God would raise up these leaders. And watch this. The Bible says, but the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. Interesting language, isn't it? The Spirit of the Lord came on. Or other translations would say, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And watch the result. 
before the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Gideon was afraid, he was, he was timid, he was hiding from his enemies, and he was living in fear. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he sounded a trumpet, many people assembled. He became this incredibly bold leader who led his people to freedom in the most bold ways that you can imagine. And in relation to Samson, the Spirit of the Lord, here's this terminology again, came upon Samson. And as a result, a guy who should just have normal strength, he wasn't built like Hercules. Otherwise, people wouldn't question the source of his strength. They would kind of assume it was his muscles. He was just a normal-looking guy, and yet the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. There's that terminology again. And he tore a line apart with his bare hands. But as the Spirit of the Lord would come upon somebody in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord could also depart from somebody in the Old Testament. You guys know the story of Samson and Delilah, and he told her the secret of his strength, and they shaved his head, and he got up to fight the Philistines who were upon him. And one of the saddest portions of Scripture in all of, uh, one of the saddest texts in all of Scripture, Samson got up to fight, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Spirit of the Lord could come upon somebody, and the Spirit of the Lord would depart from somebody. And as far as the first king of Israel goes, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. His name was Saul, and his servants arrived at Gibeah, and a procession of prophets met him. And watch this, the Spirit of God came upon him powerfully, and he joined them in prophesying. And again, Saul is a case study of how the Spirit of the Lord could come upon somebody and depart from somebody, and come upon somebody and depart from somebody. And Saul's successor, David, experienced this phenomenon, the Spirit of God. I would like this phrase, it rushed powerfully upon David and remained upon David from that time forward. And so when the Spirit of God would come upon somebody, the Spirit would enable them to prophesy and would give them authority and power and boldness and might, supernatural strength. And the Spirit of the Lord would come upon a select group of people for specific tasks, for oftentimes simply a specific season. And that's the pattern of the the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. But things shifted in the New Testament. It was prophesied that it would happen. In the Old Testament, we read about how things would shift, and there wouldn't simply be a pattern that we could observe of the Old Testament, but there'd be a promise of of how the Holy Spirit would would interact with God's people. And the prophet Joel writes, and incidentally, on the day of Pentecost, when the New Testament church was born, and the Spirit of God came upon the 120, and the church immediately turned into 3,000, and Peter stood and he preached. Uh, This was the text that he quoted, saying, this is what happened. You read about it from the Old Testament prophecies. And Joel writes, and it shall come to pass afterward... That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Jesus says, in relation to this promise before the crucifixion, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, as he's talking to his disciples, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the same spirit that hovered over the waters upon creation. The same spirit that came upon Gideon powerfully, or Samson powerfully, or Saul, or David. This same spirit that Joel prophesied of. The same spirit in which Christ functioned and performed His miracles. It's the very spirit of Christ Himself. The spirit of truth. Jesus said, on that day, 
you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and watch this, I am in you. So in the Old Testament, we have a pattern of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, and we are in the New Testament age, the last age, the church age, this is the era in which we live, we have a promise of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament pattern, the Spirit comes upon people. But in the New Testament era in which we live, the Holy Spirit comes inside to indwell people and to make His home in the hearts of people, which is why we no longer need a temple or a tabernacle. The tabernacle was destroyed in 586 B.C. The Jews rebuilt it. The tabernacle was destroyed in 70 A.D., and it's never been rebuilt. Why? There's no need for the tabernacle to be rebuilt. Not for the true body of Christ, there is not, because each of us who are followers of Christ are the temple of God, the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit doesn't simply come upon us. The Holy Spirit comes within us and indwells us and makes His home. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon a select few leaders. But in the New Testament, our era, the Holy Spirit indwells anyone and everyone who will call on the name of the Lord. Any man, woman, boy, or girl who will call on the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, The Holy Spirit would come upon somebody for simply a season, for simply a work, but in the New Testament, in our era, the Holy Spirit indwells, makes us home inside any man, woman, boy, or girl who will call upon the name of the Lord to indwell them, not for a season, but forever. And this is how the Holy Spirit operates in our life. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul uh, outlines three groups of people, and the first group of people are the lost those who do not have the Spirit of Christ. The second group of people are the saved, those who have the Spirit of Christ. And I hope you don't stay there long. And you can be in this category and still be experiencing perpetual defeat on a daily basis because you're living outside of of your potential in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that's the third group of people, the surrendered. Those whom the Holy, Holy Spirit has completely. So, let's look at the first group, the lost, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ. And let's read about them in verse 5 through 8. We read, those who live according to the flesh have their minds on what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds on sets on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, there's been some debate throughout church history whether this is contrasting a spirit-filled Christian and a carnal Christian or somebody who's simply lost and somebody who's saved. And I, I personally subscribe to the belief that this is not contrasting a, a spirit-filled Christian and a carnal, lukewarm Christian. This is contrasting a lost person and a found person. And it is Paul unpacks three contrasts, I believe, between the lost and the saved. The first, he says, those who live according to the flesh. And I believe that this is contrasting the lost and the saved because of its context. We're coming out of last week when Paul was talking about those who try to relate to God on Mount Sinai and those who try to relate to God on Mount Calvary. And so continuing that contrast, he goes into verse 5. And he says, those who live according to the flesh. That is trying to relate to God based upon human works and an effort. Now, 
Those who live according to the flesh, we read that and we immediately think, well, that's the sexually immoral. Those are people who are addicted to drugs. Those are people who are just, you know, really big time sinners. But it's those who are trying to relate to the God in the flesh, period. Those who are trying to relate to God based upon their good works, their achievements. Mount Sinai. As you recall from last week, the righteousness of God was set as a goal for people to strive for, but the law never established or never provided the ability to achieve that goal. So whereas we saw God's holiness and perfection, we lack the power to achieve that holiness and perfection. So the separation or chasm between God's holiness and our sinfulness brought condemnation and death. And that's how people relate to God on Mount Sinai. They see the law, they see God's perfection, they can't obtain it, and it brings condemnation and death. And so people can try to relate to God according to the flesh. That means moral sinners or judgmental sinners, sins of the heart, sins of pride, or that also means fleshly sinners, corrupt sinners. It's, it's, would be akin to the older brother and the younger brother. They're both far from God. But he contrasts that with those who live according to the Spirit. And those who live according to the flesh have their minds set or pre-established. It's fixed. There's a pattern of their mind on what the flesh desires. And what the flesh desires can be lust. It can be drugs. What the flesh desires can be pride. It can be position. But those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. Whether it it's, it's, seems to be simply immoral attempts to reach God or judgmental attempts to reach God. Sins of the flesh or sins of the heart. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. In verse 7 and 8, we look at the result of the mind that's governed by the flesh, which is death. It's hostile to God. Like those kids I mentioned. They're like, I don't want your God. It does not submit to God's law court, nor can it do so. It's just disrespectful and, and has an attitude towards authority. And those who are in the realms of the flesh cannot please God. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? And this is another reason that I believe that this is in relation to Paul contrasting the lost and the found rather than a carnal Christian and a saved Christian. Because in reality, if we have the Spirit of Christ in our heart, and we are relating to God through the righteousness of Christ, which is a gift to us, we can please God, and we should endeavor to please God. When we give somebody a cup of cold water, it pleases Jesus. When we comfort somebody, it pleases Jesus. When we fast and pray and seek the face of God, it pleases Jesus. As long as we're not trying to relate to God from our righteousness and our efforts to be acceptable, but we're relating to God from the standpoint that He has made us acceptable, and therefore we seek Him and we surrender to Christ, we can bring a smile to the heart of God. One time Jesus looked at somebody's faith and said, wow, when we trust Christ, it pleases Christ. When we worship Christ, it pleases Christ. And we as Christians, with the Spirit of Christ within us, we are fully acceptable to Christ. We are the righteousness of God, and therefore we should, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, endeavor on a day-to-day basis to bring a smile to the heart of God through our faith, through our prayers, through our sacrifices, through our worship. And knowing that we can bring a smile to the heart of God and we can please the one who gave his life for us. 
should, should motivate us to live for Christ and seek the face of God. But no matter how many good works we do, if we are trying to earn our salvation or relate to God based upon our goodness, we can never please God because we're not in the realm of the Spirit. We're simply in the realm of the flesh. And Jesus said to the disciples who followed him for three and a half years and were still so unchristlike. Can you imagine? They followed Jesus for three and a half years and they were still so unchristlike. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For, I, for if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And in a moment, they were Christ-like when the Holy Spirit came inside of them. Do you see the difference? For three and a half years, they followed Jesus and didn't have the Spirit of Christ indwelling them. And after three and a half years of doing their very best to hang on to His words and follow His examples, they were still angry at lost people, saying, call fire fire down from heaven and destroy the city. They were still judgmental. They were still so eager to pick up their swords and, and kill Romans. They were still judgmental and racist towards people who were not Jews. They were still on the eve of Christ's crucifixion after three and a half years arguing about which of them was the greatest. After three and a half years of following Jesus, listening to deep insights night after night around the campfire, following his example firsthand, they were still so terribly unchristlike. But at the day of Pentecost, The Holy Spirit didn't simply come upon them and could potentially leave. The Holy Spirit came within them. And the temple was no longer necessary. They became the temple of God. And in an instant, they were Christ-like. In an instant. Because the Holy Spirit came within them to make His home and to change them and to live through them. So there's the lost, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ. And then there's the saved, those who have the Spirit of Christ. And Paul unpacks that in verse 9 and 10. He said, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Amazing, isn't it? The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. The same spirit that hovered over the waters at creation is living in us. The same spirit that caused Lazarus to come out of the grave is living within us. The same power that caused the blind to see and the lame to walk is living within us. The same power that spoke the cosmos into existence, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is living within us. The moment we believe. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 through 14 is an incredible truth about the mechanics involved in the Holy Spirit coming to live within Christians. Read it and memorize it. How many of you are endeavoring to memorize Romans chapter 8? As I challenged you last week. A few, a few. Keep at it, keep at it. It will change your life. Endeavor to memorize Romans chapter 8. You can do it, even if you only get about halfway through it. But also, endeavor to memorize Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And it unpacks the mechanics and the theology of the Holy Spirit. Memorize it, read it on your own and memorize it. 
But we know from many places of Scripture, and specifically from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 as well, the Spirit of Christ indwells you and makes His home the moment you believe the gospel. The moment. It's an instant. It's like a flash of lightning. You're a new creature. You're born again. Upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in Him with the seal. The promised Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen gradually. It doesn't happen naturally. It happens instantaneously. It happens supernaturally. And we're immediately transformed. We're a new creature. We're, we're born again. It's nothing we've earned. It's something we receive. The moment we simply place our trust in Christ, boom, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart to make us home, to never leave us nor forsake us, not to come and go as was the pattern of the Old Testament, but to remain and to change us as is the promise of the New Testament. And at that moment, you are in Christ. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. Which means you have all the Holy Spirit that there is to possess. There's terminology, and I believe it's biblical terminology. Don't be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But that could lead us to believe that, that to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we receive more of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we receive more of the Holy Spirit, because the moment we're saved, all of the Spirit of Christ indwells us. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit is for the Holy Spirit to have all of us. For us to be consumed by the Holy Spirit that resides within our heart. And when the Holy Spirit has all of us, the Holy Spirit is no longer grieved. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved in your heart, it like saps your energy, as the psalmist said in Psalm 32, like the noonday sun. I mean, you have no energy, you have no joy, you have no stamina. If there is anything in your life that grieves the Holy Spirit, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Just think about the Holy Spirit's name. The Holy Spirit is holy. Anything that is not holy grieves the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit grieves you, all of your strength is just evaporated like you just ran a marathon in the noonday sun. All of your joy is evaporated. Make sure there's nothing in your life that grieves the Holy Spirit. And if you're totally surrendered to Christ, nothing in your life grieves the Holy Spirit, and you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then the Holy Spirit has all of you, and therefore you have all of the Spirit's power in your life. The moment you believe, Christ indwells you. And at that moment, you have all the Holy Spirit that there is to have. But the question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? And then thirdly, the Spirit will not come and go as in the Old Testament pattern. We read in Ephesians 13 and 14 terminology like this. Upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in Him with the seal. You were sealed. Nothing can break the seal of God. Jesus says, nothing can snatch you out of my grip. And this seal guarantees your spiritual inheritance, guarantees your anointing. It guarantees you're a child of God. It guarantees your prayers will be heard and answered. It guarantees your place in heaven. It guarantees you're saved. And it guarantees that you're God's possession and you are his child. And so this is the saved But then that leads us into the surrendered. And the surrendered are those whom the Holy Spirit has completely, as we mentioned, the totally sold out Christians. One of my heroes of the faith, his name is Jim Elliott. He was sold out to the Spirit, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He was a a, a martyr in, uh, in Ecuador, killed by the Akas, a people group known for killing people outside of their people group. They kill people for sport, for fun. And this was, I believe, in the 40s. And so Jim Elliott and his his team of uh, missionaries, four other missionaries and himself, 
they, they, they went to this era, area in Ecuador, this vicinity, and they started meeting people groups surrounding the Akas because nobody had ever made contact with them. And nobody knew their language. They were just piecing together bits and pieces of their language to get in there. And, and it, was, it was a long in, in, endeavor, but these guys were really great linguistics. They had the gift to learn languages. One of the team members was a pilot. I believe his name was Nate Fleming. And they, they would fly these, one of those small planes. They would circle it around the Akas. And they would drop pictures of themselves and supplies and food to make life easier. It came time to make contact with the Akas. And Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, wrote that she remembers the last time that she saw her husband. They had a, a newborn little girl. And he put his hand to the door as he was leaving that day to make contact with the Akas, he and his four friends, his missionary friends. He's, I believe, 29 at this point. And she says, you do know I may never see you again. And Jim Elliott said, I'm prepared to give my life for the salvation of the Akas. They made contact. They, they landed on, uh, they, they named it, I believe they nicknamed it Kitty Beach. They landed their plane. They made contact. Shortly after, they were uh, speared down. And le- later evidence uh, surfaced that they were actually tortured before they were killed. They didn't make radio contact because they were very systematic. And uh, the military came in and found their bodies floating down the river. You know that, that this missionary team actually had weapons, guns. The Akas didn't have guns. They had guns in their airplane for animals, for the use against animals. But as a team, they had already committed, we are not going to use our weapons on the Akas. And they reasoned, because we're ready for heaven. The Akas are not. Can you imagine? One of the missionaries who was killed, his dad along with Elizabeth Elliot and others, went in to finish the work that their, that their family had started. And Nate Fleming's dad, he was a big man, he found the man who killed his son, and he walked over to him, and he held him tight, and he said, in Jesus' name, I love you. Elizabeth and the others, they went in, they led this tribe to Christ. Some 75 years later, this tribe is a sold-out, born-again, spirit-filled tribe who has a legacy of loving Jesus and they teach Christ to the next generations. And that's, that's the transformation that the Spirit of Christ can do in your life. He will give you a new heart and a new set of desires and cause you to walk after Christ through the law of love. And somebody can only reflect this kind of boldness, this kind of kingdom authority, if they are totally sold out to Christ. This is what a sold-out, totally surrendered Christian looks like. Jim Elliott wrote, He makes his ministers flames of fire. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the asbestos of other things. Asbestos is is a fireproof substance. It's a fireproof material from building. And the Holy Spirit is a fire and a flame. And Jim Elliott is writing, Lord, is there anything that's fireproof in my life? Anything that's unholy? Anything that you can't consume to, to burn for your glory? Deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I might be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? Uh, 
But in me dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, God, for it is thine. I seek not a full life. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like yours, Lord Jesus. It's a picture of a consumed soul, a consumed life, a totally surrendered, a totally sold out life. The life that's not content to to be saved and to have the Holy Spirit, but a life that's so enamored by the grace of God and the glory of God and the salvation of Christ and so burdened for lost souls that this soul says, Lord, I want to be a totally surrendered soul. Live through me. So that there's less of me and more of you until there's none of me and it's all you, Lord. Live through me. Deliver me from the dread asbestos of anything that can't be consumed by your spirit. So, how do we live this sort of surrendered life? One, absolute surrender. Absolute surrender to the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, and only by the Spirit, but through the Spirit, we have the capacity to put to death the deeds of the body. We heard a testimony last week of somebody who was addicted to meth for 10 years. 10 years. Part of Sherry's family. And then her first day here at Hope Works, through the Spirit of Christ, she's been free as of last Sunday. It was 86 days. This is a new heart. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil. We try to skip square one and go straight to square two and resist the devil and get beat up every time. We first submit to God, then we have the capacity to resist the devil. We have to absolutely surrender to the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. If you're a child of God and the Holy Spirit is within you, there is no sin that has beset you that you cannot overcome today, right now, this moment, if you simply absolutely surrender to the Spirit of Christ that is within you. You may have walked in here an alcoholic. You can leave totally free and sober. You could have walked in addicted to drugs. You can leave totally free and sober. You might have walked in addicted to some sexual addiction. You can leave completely pure and holy. If you absolutely surrender to the Spirit, it doesn't require 12 steps in six months or two years. It can happen instantaneously the moment you surrender, absolute surrender to the Holy Spirit. You commit to totally repent of anything that's dread asbestos and that is not holy. Before you couldn't do it, but now that you have the Spirit of Christ, you have that capacity. Uh, You know the... The United States was slow to enter into World War II, and Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and thus we entered into the war, and, and if, if, if that didn't take place, then everybody in the world would probably be speaking German today. It's the truth. And after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the admiral who crafted the strategy is quoted as saying, uh, I fear all we've done is awaken a sleeping giant and filled it with a terrible Resolve, And I believe that the church is a sleeping giant, unaware of the 
power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that spoke all things into existence, that indwells us. But the moment we absolutely surrender to Christ's lordship in every area, not compartmentalized areas of our life, but every area of our heart and mind, then we are filled with the power of the resurrection and can overcome any temptation that besets us. Absolute surrender. Second, well, let's read about it in verse 11 through 13. In chapter 8, Paul goes on to talk about this sold-out Christian. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. I believe that's not simply talking about the resurrection of the, of the saints, the rapture. I believe that it's also talking about our sanctification. The Holy Spirit will subdue our flesh. Rather than our flesh dominating our life upon every whim, the Holy Spirit will dominate the flesh. It's because of His Spirit who dwells within us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And second, in terms of total surrender, stay attentive. Stay attentive to the Holy Spirit. This means to be sensitive and submissive to the Spirit's leading. We read in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. God is always speaking. He's always whispering. But are we listening? You know what? I think one of the saddest things about sin and compartmentalizing our relationship with Jesus Christ and having unholy areas that we entertain in our life is that it desensitizes our heart to the whispers of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit is leading and we can't hear because our heart is calloused and numb. But stay attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's always saying, go talk to this person. Say this prayer. Go here. Do this. And constantly cry, Constantly cry, Abba, verse 15 and 16. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba. One of the greatest revelations that Jesus brought us about God is that the same God who was so holy that when he was communing with Moses on the mountain... And if, a, if an animal approached that mountain, it would be struck dead. And if somebody would even reach out and touch the Ark of the Covenant to stabilize it, because it was just disrespectful and unthoughtful, they would immediately be dead. The same God who was so holy that only a high priest could enter his presence, and that once a year, and that through the Holy of Holies, this same God came near, and when the disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, pray Abba. Sociologists tell us that the first word that most American uh, children learn to speak is dada, 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 daddy. And in Jesus' culture, first century Palestine, the first word that most Hebrew children would learn to speak was abba, 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 which means daddy. And this is the revelation that Jesus brought us. When we pray, we can relate to God, not as some cold, distant, angry being, but as our Abba. When you pray, Jesus said, pray Abba. 
And the moment we're saved and we receive the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell, who will never leave us, he will never forsake us, prays through us. And when he prays, he makes us the child of God. We're adopted children of God. And we pray, Abba, Daddy. Nothing pleases God more. And talking about pleasing God, nothing pleases God more than when we rely upon God as our Abba. And we rest in Him and depend upon Him as our Abba, our Daddy. Trusting Him with every detail in our life. Our Abba knows how many hairs are on our head. He has them numbered. Our Abba feels the earth tremble when one sparrow hits the ground in death. And Jesus said, you are of greater value than many sparrows. Don't worry about tomorrow. Your Abba knows your name. Your Abba knows exactly what you're going through. Your Abba is with you. Your Abba is carrying you. And where is Abba carrying all of us? And this is the fourth key to absolute surrender. This is where Abba is carrying all of us. We trust the Spirit to turn all of our suffering into His glory and our good. Verse 17. As we rely on Abba and trust in Abba and lean on Abba and pray to Abba and cry to Abba and Abba counts our tears and Abba carries us through the power of the Spirit that indwells us. This is where Abba is carrying us. Now if we are children children of Abba, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. And this is what Abba is doing. He's translating all of our suffering into His glory and our deepest good and deepest joy, our deepest delight through the power of the resurrection. Would you stand with me, please? When I woke up this morning, I... And I got ready, and I didn't realize it rained last night. In the last few days, I've been noticing that uh, I had these two plants on, on each side of the sidewalk as you go up to my door, and they're, they're lilies. And I've been noticing the last few days that they've been looking pretty sad. They've been looking pretty thirsty and, and um, just kind of leaning over. Usually they look very strong, but they've been looking pretty tired lately. And... And I didn't realize it rained until this morning I, I, I walked out to church and I first noticed these lilies and they, did, they didn't look tired. They were revived. It's like they were standing at attention. And then I looked at the yard and I realized, oh wow, it rained last night. And isn't that a picture of the Holy Spirit? It's no wonder that the Holy Spirit is used, water is used for a metaphor for the Holy Spirit in many places in Scripture. Because uh, the Holy Spirit is like a rain. When the Holy Spirit rains in our heart and we totally surrender to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, it revives us. It, it invigorates us. I don't understand Christians who live continually dejected and continually defeated. Now, I know that sometimes we're sorrowful and sometimes we have sleepless nights and sometimes we have dark nights of the soul. I've had some of those here recently. I get that. But we pray through and we absolutely surrender our lives and we cry out to Abba and we rest in Abba, trusting that He's turning our suffering into His glory and our good and the Holy Spirit reigns upon our heart and He he, he strengthens us and He brings restored life and renewed life. And with that restored life, the Holy Spirit brings fruitfulness. And the fruit of the Spirit is peace and joy and love and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. The Holy Spirit wants to reign in your heart. 
not just R-A-I-N, it rained down, because the Holy Spirit's in your heart. But the Holy Spirit wants to reign, R-E-I-G-N. Reign is a king, reigns in a country. You are the country of the King of Kings. He's within you, but is He reigning in your life? Through absolute surrender, the Holy Spirit will reign in your heart. And with that, bring the authority, all of the authority that you need to subdue whatever is blocking your path. There's incredible kingdom authority indwelling you through the power of the Holy Spirit. But in order to live in authority over that which is to be subjected under us as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to first get under the authority that is over us as followers of Jesus Christ, which is the King of Kings and the reign of the Holy Spirit in our heart and mind and life. And we will never live in authority over that in which we are supposed to exercise dominion, whether it's the flesh or sin or worry or fears or addictions. We will never reign in dominion over that in which is to be subjected under us until we first get under the authority that's over us. And that goes back to absolute surrender. There is a Roman centurion. He understood authority. He had a hundred soldiers under him. He said the word and they jumped. They said, how high? He said, jump. They said, how high? He had authority. He had authority because he was under Rome. But if he ever stepped out from Rome's authority, he could tell his men to jump, and they would say, yeah, take a hike. He understood that his authority flowed from being submissive to the authority over him. And the moment he wasn't submissive to the authority over him, nobody under him had to submit to his authority. He understood authority. And so he went and he told Jesus, I have a servant at my house but I'm unworthy to have you at my house. He saw the authority that Jesus had, and because he had authority, he said, I'm unworthy to have you at my house, but I understand that you're also a man under authority. Interesting, isn't it? He saw Jesus raising the dead and calming the storms and casting out demons, and yet he didn't say, I understand that you, like me, are a man over authority, because he understood authority. Jesus had so much authority, and he understood authority as a Roman soldier. He said, I understand that you, too, are a man under authority. Because I too am a man under authority. He understood the authority flows from getting under the authority that you're to be under. He said, I'm unworthy to have you come to my house, but I know that you're a man under authority just like me because you have authority. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was astonished. He said, your servant's healed. Go. In the same way, there's incredible power that indwells every follower of Jesus Christ. There is the power of joy. There is a power of anointing. There's the power to heal. There is a power to call the, the, the healing power of God upon our friend's life. There is incredible power. There's a power to witness. There's power for ministry. There's power for love. But many Christians are living in their own weak, depleted, frail strength that's already given out, and you're still going through the motions. You've got to get under authority absolute surrender to the King of Kings and let Him reign in your heart and mind. Absolute surrender to the King of Kings. Be attentive to the Spirit's leading. and Cry out, Abba, to your Daddy who's carrying you to an appointment with a testimony as the power of the resurrection translates all of your suffering into the glory of God that's so worth it you wouldn't trade the suffering if you could. And so the first step, I think we just need to make sure that the Holy Spirit is reigning in our heart. He's already in your heart if you're a Christian. You just need to make sure He's reigning in your heart. Three kinds of people. The lost who don't have the Spirit. Is that you? How do you get the Spirit? Trust that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross. Trust that alone. Boom! The Holy Spirit's in your heart. 
There's those who are lost because they don't have the Spirit in their heart. There are those who are saved because they have the Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't have them. And so they're weak and frail, anemic Christians who are living in defeat. And then there are those who are totally surrendered Christians, and the Holy Spirit is reigning in their heart, and they are functioning in power and authority, and the joy of the Lord characterizes their life and countenance. Which are you? Well, would you bow your heads with me? I would just like to invite you to come surrender and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to absolutely reign in my heart, soul, mind, and strength in every aspect of my life. I want you to absolutely reign. I repent of anything that's unholy. I repent of the dread asbestos of anything that is, cannot be consumed by the fire of your Holy Spirit. I repent of anything that grieves you, Holy Spirit. I repent of all of it. And I invite you to absolutely reign in my heart and mind. And with that, fill me with your power to subdue my sin. Fill me with the power to, to, to take dominion over my flesh. I may have come in here an addict, God, but I'm going to leave completely free and completely sober because I absolutely surrender to the reign of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I will seek you with all of my heart from this point forward, and I will wake up every morning and absolutely surrender to you, and I will seek you throughout each and every day, and I will cry out to you, Abba, trusting that you will translate my suffering into your glory and my deepest joy. So... I invite you to respond. Just come up here to the altars and absolutely surrender to the Holy Spirit's reign in your life. And we will respond in worship.